Tony, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me here. So you are Tony Woodleaf, and you are the author of the very hot bestseller, I, Citizen. I like how you put that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I am. It's flying off the shelves. It really is. And uh, and we should we should dig into this because I think I think you're going to solve all the problems for people that are frustrated with big government. I'm going to help them solve their own problems. Nice. Yeah. The revolution is here. A movement of people free to live, work, and choose. We won't tell you what to think. We just demand that you think for yourself. This is Kibbe on Liberty. I think whatever you choose to do in this environment that you own is manly by yeah, this, definition. This is, this is my man cave, and yeah. we'll, we'll talk about Herbert Spencer if we want to. By definition, it's yeah. manly. Done um, by man. You know, we were talking about coffee earlier, and uh, um, my joke, which is not really a joke, is if you want to know the best coffee shop, just look, make sure the barista has a neck tattoo, and nice. perhaps a man bun. I got you. Um, that's optional. Mm-hmm. But, but you had a story to tell us about about the proper making of a Manhattan. Sure. Okay. So um, this guy out of nowhere emails me because he followed me on Twitter or he read something I wrote. And he's like, hey, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods uh, a week after Christmas. Can I stop by? And this is like June. So I'm. you don't think about the time that's coming. You think, well, right now that sounds like a pleasant idea. Sure, pal. Stop by. Yeah. You know. And so then we get closer to the date, and he emails me to remind me, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this guy's coming. Put it out of my head. And then around 11 a.m., there's a knock on the door, and I thought this would be later in the day. And here he is on my doorstep, and uh, I open the door, and this dude is like six foot three, and he's got tattoos all over, and he's got like a neck tat and stuff. And I'm thinking, maybe I fell for something. Maybe he – like my mother told me once, one day you're going to write something that's going to get you shot. Yeah. And I thought, maybe he's here to shoot me. And so I thought, should I go get my gun? But then I have to tuck it in my pants. I've never done that. I'll probably shoot myself in the ass. I better just, I'm going to deal with it here. All right. Stay near the knives. We sit down and he's a wonderful person. And he tells me this kind of, uh, you know, life story of growing up. Uh, his whole family was drunk. So he grew up in a bar, basically. Uh, was in a motorcycle gang for a while, you know, a crime-filled life. And then he found Jesus. And now he's got 18 kids on a compound in Idaho, something like that. Right. So we hang out for a while, for hours, and it's okay. But the whole time, I'm sort of resentful that he's taking up all my time. We get towards the evening, and uh, I said, hey, let me make us a drink. He says, that sounds great. I said, I'll make a Manhattan, because I thought I knew how to make one. So I make a Manhattan, and he drinks it dutifully. And then he says, you know what? Let me make the next round. And I'm thinking, okay, show me a Manhattan. And then he, he does it entirely differently with a twist of li- uh, lemon, if you can believe that. There's a whole thing you can do. It's delicious. It's wonderful. Now we're drinking and we're like, hey, uh, you know, what else can you make? And he's like, here, what do you got? Here's some rum. Here's a lime. He makes this other thing. It's delicious. And now I'm thinking, this guy's great. I'm so glad he's here. And that's when he says, well, I got to go. And he <laughs> leaves and I never heard from him again. But he left the recipe for a great Manhattan. So that's the, I, that's I, the story. I thought this could be a metaphor for like the, the final chapter in your book where you you're saddened by the the lack of gathering that modern America, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I joke and I don't think it's a joke, but I feel like uh, having a beer or two and getting together to work out differences yeah. is is sort of the essence of what makes America yeah. great. Yeah, I think that's right. I I was just lamenting this because my uh, my 18 year old bought a real crappy car. Sorry if you're watching Isaac, but it's a it's a rust bucket. But he's been fixing it up. And he put these mufflers on that I guess they're designed for teenagers to drive cars that sound like they're a lot faster than they really are. Yeah. And it does. And the thing is, every time he drives down the street, I'm thinking, oh, God, the neighbors are going to get so mad at us. And sure enough, some neighbor flags him down. She's like, young man, you're driving too fast through this neighborhood. And he says, I only do 35. This car can barely get up to 35. I'm not speeding. She said, you're driving too fast. I might have to talk to your parents. So he warns me. And I'm thinking, to my shame... I've never spoken to this woman before. She's got a great big yard up the street. We got our stuff back in the trees. Never talked to my neighbor. And now the first time we may talk is because my son is irritating her with his driving. And I think that's often how it works is you don't really meet your neighbor until the dog is barking and it's irritating you or a tree limb falls on your fence or something like that. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how to get past that because I'm so comfortable in my home, in yeah. my routines. But Well, it's... Um 
I think so. Here we are in the belly of the beast, and and I th- I think if I could characterize the the theme of what you're trying to get at is, and I'll use my words, not yours, and you can tell me how wrong I got it. But we've sort of outsourced everything to a mm-hmm. third party, and that mm-hmm. that third party has has more and more become centralized here in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. and and that sort of relieves us of the responsibility of being a good person, a good citizen. And I've always described liberty as that, that burden that you feel when you look in the mirror in the morning. Mm-hmm. And like, did I do what I needed to do? Yeah. And will I do that today? And that's, that's one of the mythologies I think about, about individual liberty is that this, this caricature that it's somehow do whatever you want, and I don't give a damn about anything else. It's, I think it's almost the opposite, that yep. the burden of, of taking responsibility for yourself first, as Jordan Peterson might teach us, or, yeah. or your neighbors and your community and, and, and work your way from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's a full understanding of, of liberty. I think that's right. I, I think it was Hayek that wrote about how in a centralized economy, even though there's all these decisions being made at the top about how to run everything, there are many, many, many more decisions in a free society because we all have to make decisions about our own property and lives and our social arrangements. And so in some ways you're, t- you're taking that uh, uh, autonomy and authority and moral responsibility away from people. And I think something happens to a person when they no longer have to make moral choices. Yeah. They may not become immoral, but they in some respects become amoral maybe, which is not completely, fully the life you're supposed to have. Right? Or even like morally lazy where yeah. you're like, oh, they got that in D.C. Yeah. The, the guy that I just voted for said he was yeah. going to take care of the poor. So that's yeah. that's not my thing. So I don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 I think that's exactly right. And it, it's it's corrosive. And I, um, I'll i take a step back and, and I, I feel like, so you've written a book called I Citizen. And I feel like what you're trying to deal with is the, the hyper-tribal partisanship mm-hmm. that, that seemingly is much worse today than it was even a few years ago. I, mm-hmm. I think that's true. I spend so much time on Twitter, I don't know if I have a clean understanding of what's <laughs> actually going on in the world, but, and I also live on Capitol Hill, so yeah. I, I really don't have a chance for understanding reality. Mm-hmm. But it, it does seem, and do you, do you agree that, that this, this real angry tribalism is is stronger today than it was even 20 years ago? I'll say yes and no, which I know is kind of a wimpy answer. Um, yes, it's clear, for example, just you can look at the um, sort of these empirical studies of news coverage and you see that coverage of polarization, of American polarization, you know, left versus right, Republican, Democrat, has gone way up in the past 15 years. There's more stories about how we can't agree and those stories, about 70% of them, tend to feature a man in the street kind of style, yeah. uh, which is never a randomly chosen man in the street. It's someone chosen in advance to advance your thesis. So we know there's more coverage of polarization. We know that there's less kind of cross-party uh, bipartisan voting in Congress, for example, that uh, members of Congress are much more polarized, and there's much more rancor and you know, um, distrust among those people that I would say are in the political class. However... Uh, most Americans are not in that political class, so they are not uh, highly ideologically uh, motivated, motivated or attentive. Uh, they don't have a firm commitment to a political party. Uh, majority now identify as independent and jump back and forth between parties uh, across time. So most people are just watching this and being told that that's America. Yeah, when yeah, it's really not. Yeah, and I, I think the, I think the latter is more true, and and what kind of gives me hope for people is I almost feel they're rational enough not to really pay attention to the silliness that we do here in Washington, D.C. And sometimes it's frustrating to me because some things they need to be paying attention to um, lest they be forced into um, a top-down paradigm that will not allow them to think for themselves. You know, I was thinking about this, and you mentioned the Better Arguments project in your book. And, and I have a story to tell about, about hyper-partisanship. Uh, five, six years ago now, I was participating in a PBS debate mm-hmm. hosted at the University of Virginia, and it was on polarization. Oh, boy. So they set up a debate on polarization. 
and they put uh, me and George Will on one side. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, um, a professor from the University of Seattle, whose name I don't remember, and a guy who's a friend of mine, Eric Liu, mm-hmm. who started the Better Arguments Project mm-hmm. much later. And uh, much to the disappointment of the moderator, Eric, who is very progressive, and myself, who is not progressive at all, um, we started having a conversation instead of an argument. And it was very frustrating, um, proving perhaps that polarization wasn't necessary. But um, I I do think, and I've learned this from hanging out, by the way, this must be Joe Biden flying by right now. He's yeah. upset that we're having a civil conversation. Well, I saw a uh, helicopter, presidential or whatever, vice presidential, fly over the bridge when I was coming over. Yeah. So maybe something's going on. They're going to solve a problem yeah. somewhere. Yeah. That's it. But And I've, I've told this story a thousand times, but hanging out with my new progressive friends um, taught me how little I understood about conversation and language because they were using a totally different mm-hmm. set. Mm-hmm. Uh, using the same words, but they're using them differently than I was to the point where I didn't actually understand what they were saying. And so it took me it took me some time to try to empathetically mm-hmm. understand where they were coming from when they used language. And that's part of part of the reason that I think that we argue to no avail is that we don't listen. yeah and say that's like, right. you know what I, I what do you mean when you say that? because yeah. We have, we have these phrases, and libertarians are more guilty than anyone else, but we have these these go-to phrases that we use that probably mean nothing to right. anyone outside of our tribe. Yeah, that's right. I, so I think intellectuals will develop a shorthand, in, in some respects, really because it's just faster to have the conversation, right, with people who understand the shorthand. But then there's also, uh, in the people who are more tribally minded, the, the verbiage is more signaling. It's like a little ping. It's like you're a firefly, right? Sending out a signal to find the female or male of your particular firefly species. You want to attract them and put the others on notice. And so I think that's where it begins to break down. In fact, I talk about in the book an, another organization that does some focus group work called Heart and Mind. I interviewed a couple of their researchers, and they bring together people, a diverse array, truly diverse, not just uh, Harvard, you know, poster diverse, but actual diversity of uh, class and experience, bring them together and they have conversations about hard topics, abortion, joblessness, addiction. Uh, And what they're really trying to do is understand how do people learn one another's language so that they can talk to each other. And they said something that that fascinated me, which is they have have to do a pre-survey because about one in five potential participants is so politically poisoned that they can't have that conversation. The minute it gets started, they're sending out little comments like the firefly to see, well, who are my people and who are my enemies in this room? So they do a pre-survey now. They've learned how to screen them out and they don't let them in the room. Yeah. And then regular people can have a conversation. They don't agree, but they can at least hear each other, You know, understand the language that the other is using. And that's all you're that's all we're really asking for. Because if you, we can understand each other. If I can agree, okay, you're not a bad person. I don't want what you want. I'm going to vote against you, but you're not bad. We're not going to kill each other, right? We're going to maybe even like each other, yeah, right? And that's that's what's being taken from us. The you use examples, and I want to get into these words: uh, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, which we 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 use interchangeably, but perhaps we shouldn't. Um, but you use one one example you use is is the the partisan nature of George W. Bush's war on terror, mm-hmm. and how and I remember the anti-war movement yeah. back then. I, I sometimes wonder where it is today. But um, you know, Republicans to a person would call you unpatriotic, un-American yeah. if you didn't support yeah. the president's war. Yeah. Um, and then flip the script when when Obama started um, droning everybody, mm-hmm. and and there was exceptions to this. Obviously, yeah. Rand Paul stepped up, um, yeah. and and called out both parties on such a thing. But it it just when Obama was doing it, it right. was a righteous progressive project. When Bush was doing it, it was evil it was and vice crimes. versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Why? why? <laughs> uh, so when I, I talk about the political class some in the book and what I'm getting at is there are, first of all, I'll try to be clear. There's nothing wrong with the ideology 
as long as the content of the ideology is not evil, right? Mm -hmm. So if your ideology is that the rest of the world must live the way you want, well, that's evil, yeah. right? Uh, but if, if your ideology is, I want to live in a community like this and, and we want to have these rules and so on, okay, fine. Ideologues are not the problem. It's when we marry ideology with political tribalism, it becomes poisonous. And the reason is because your beliefs become malleable. Not just the facts right, that you believe, but what you believe is right or wrong. And so we saw that where, you know, when George W. Bush is in office, Nancy Pelosi is a staunch opponent, right, of the federal government spying on everyone, spying on journalists and everyone else. But then the moment her guy is in office, she was the critical vote to preserve a lot of those NSA spying powers because her guy was in office. And I promise you, she did not lose any sleep over it. Right. She, it didn't even occur to her that there's a inconsistency because that's what happens. You. Hannah Arendt talked about this, about totalitarianism. It breeds this alienation from others, uh, an alienation from reality, and ultimately an alienation from yourself, right? You are disconnected from all these things, and then you become this cog, you know, caught up in this hysteria. And that's what political ideologues have become. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wonder if it's less ideological in any sense, except they believe in power. And I guess that's what a definition of authoritarianism is, yeah. um, as opposed to opportunism. Like you, mm -hmm. you want to hurt the other team so that you can have the majority. And, yeah. and obviously that was part of part of her motive in that. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of hard to to distinguish sometimes between the these the spouted ideologies of yeah. the political class yeah. versus their real motives, which is just accumulating power. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a. I'm, I'm, who, I can't divine what they tell themselves, but I think that you're right, Matt, that there's this signaling to their base, their tribe, and uh, they've got to feed that tribe and keep them angry because that keeps them compliant. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. They don't necessarily have any agenda other than control and power, and so they can switch sides um, quite easily, quite nimbly, which is why uh, one of the things I look at in the book is you can go back to the 50s and you can find some studies. There's problems with all this polling, but insofar as you can trust the polling, uh, there's some indication that there was a, in the 50s, you had maybe 12% of the population that was really deeply ideological in some respects and about 50-50 left and right. And today it's around 20, 22%. But the thing is, it doesn't look like that was a, a uniformly increasing across time. If it were just increasing at a steady rate, we get well into this century before more than half the country is, you know, a, a drone in team red and team blue. But I think what you would find if we had more data is instead it's been this rapid upward slope since the 90s for a lot of reasons, which means we're getting closer every year to a majority of the country really being invested in red versus blue, that kind of mindset, and turning off their reasoning brains. And yeah. that's very dangerous, right? What do you, what do you think drives that? Uh, you know, so Robert Putnam would say, and I, I pick on him some in the book, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in his work. He would say, well, if you don't have other um, kind of social uh, engagements, you know, you don't have church anymore, you don't have the Rotary Club, you don't have Little League and stuff, then um, you can get overly invested in politics as a form of catharsis and connection, and a cheap one too. Like mm -hmm. it's cheap emotional connection. Um, so I think that could be part of it, um, I think a, a deeper challenge is that, and a lot of political scientists have written about this, you've had what's called a party sorting, which means, you know, you can go back to the 80s and you could find Democrats who were for gun rights, Republicans who were for abortion rights, but they've really sorted themselves so that you're over here, you're over here on a lot of things. And Americans, um, it's much harder then to find somebody in their own tribe, if they're in a political tribe, that disagrees with them on anything. We, we agree on everything, and the other side agrees with us on nothing, therefore yeah. they're evil. We have no cross-cutting pressures to keep us together. And so it, it, it becomes a problem when more people then begin to invest in politics. The good news for now, the buffer is, most people are not invested in politics, which drives the political class crazy. Um, and that's what they're trying to change. As the, the people that aren't invested in politics, are they registering as independents or are they simply not registering? So that's a great question. Uh, I mean, you'll find um, some research into people who are un unregistered and comparing those to people who are registered and you generally will find unregistered, so they're not voting, uh, tend to have lower levels of 
everything, uh, knowledge, awareness, uh, socioeconomic class, and so on. They're sort of, they've got other concerns in life, like getting by than, than anything else, for right or for wrong. Um, when you think about people who are not registered with a party, now in some states, that's just by design. The state does not, you, you don't register with a party. So you're just, you know, you. Um, we do know from the data we have about people who are not registered with a party, they're unaffiliated, when they have a choice to affiliate, uh, a lot of political scientists disagree, and we can get into the, the reasons they're wrong, but what we do know is that uh, the people who are independents will go back and forth between parties mm-hmm. over time. They're not firmly committed to one side or the other, no matter what Nate Silver says or anybody else. They vacillate. And the reason you do see consistency in voting, so you'll see a, a county, like this is a red county, this is a red precinct, you know, they voted the same way for the past you know four cycles. It's not so much that these people are really excited about the Republicans. It's that they're a little bit to the right and the people the Democrats nominate to them are crazy. Now, the Republicans are kind of crazy too, but they're a little less crazy. Yeah. So if they're going to vote, they vote this way. They're not excited. So then that means there's this huge opportunity for candidates and parties to begin to field people who, might, maybe not in the middle in the sense that they want to split the difference, but who are willing to take some from both sides. You know, pro-liberty on this, pro-liberty on that, and put it together into a different kind of candidate. Um, it's funny, as, as a libertarian, I've always considered myself um, either outside or to the far end of, of some made-up spectrum. But in the last couple of years, I feel like I'm right in the middle because mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. like, can't we just get along? I have yeah. I have these ideas about cooperation that, that yeah. might solve a lot of these problems. And and I'm, I'll, I'll call it the middle, but it's not really because it's I, 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 I've flipped, right. flipped the spectrum where you know, on the bottom is authoritarianism of all its flavors. Mm-hmm. And as you move up, you get more towards like respect and cooperation. And- yeah, I think that you're, so if you uh, follow Marty Macri, who's a Johns Hopkins uh, doctor, or this guy who calls himself Z-Dog, also a, not epidemiologist, he's somewhere in that medical field. Uh, they talk about this term they call the alt-middle. And what Macri, it's so brilliant for, I'm, I'm so jealous because he's not a political scientist, but he brings this uh, kind of political theory to it. And he says, um, alt-middle, it's not that they want to take, um, like split down the middle. Well, you know, we want a tax rate of 40% because the Dems want 80 and the Republicans want 10. You know, it's, it's simply you want to, if you've got a thesis and an antithesis, that's left and right, then the synthesis is to take what's reasonable from both. Yeah. And so, for example, when it comes to COVID, right, of course you should have masks and vaccines, right? But you shouldn't force them on people. You know, so it's taken from both sides. Or immigration, you know, and this is borne out in the data, public opinion data. Most Americans believe immigration is pretty darn good, right? We should have it. But they also believe if somebody is an immigrant and commits a crime, you should throw his ass right back out of the country with no extended kind of effort to, to look into it. Just throw him out, which is kind of right wing in the Mm -hmm. thinking but open borders with very stern swift maybe even unfair justice that's how most americans think it's the synthesis of the left and the right and you find that on a lot of issues yeah it's the the absurdity of the old left-right spectrum where you had hitler on one end (laughs) and pol pot on the other and somehow and we were at the same time taught that if you split the difference it would be okay like i don't want to split the difference between those guys (laughs) That's like double evil. Yeah, that's right. Because you can't even decide. You yeah. know, pick your form of evil. That's yeah. just like wimpy evil. Yeah. It's even worse. But that's what a lot of pollsters do, academic pollsters, is they have in their minds a left-right continuum that is so outdated. And then they cram, they, they ask regular Americans all these questions about how they feel about health care and taxes and immigrants and abortion and the role of women in the workplace. And then they force them into this continuum. And, and then they're frustrated when most people aren't consistently liberal or conservative. And then, then the icing on the cake, they take that data and they say, well, most Americans are ignorant and don't know what they want. Subtext, therefore we shouldn't trust them. Democracy isn't trustworthy. Let the experts decide. And unfortunately there's people on the right who carry that message as well. Yeah, one of my most hated phrases in politics is low information voter. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as someone that has uh, sort of Austrian inclined and I've read my Hayek and um, by that definition we're all low information voters yeah in fact we're all radically ignorant of, of what the future holds for us yeah 
Um, but I, I think it's I think it's a conservative thing to complain about low information voting, but mm-hmm. certainly the entire progressive project is is sort of this elitist philosophy that says right. you know people are too dumb right. to do this. We should we trust them with voting? That's um, right. It comes down like like democracy has become this this term of of uh, uh, fealty now. Like oh, they yeah. say it with with a special tone in their voice. Right. And democracy apparently means as long as the people vote the right way, democracy is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's a right. It's they're too dumb. Right. That's right. It, it, both sides play that game of uh, you know if we win, it was a clear uh, uh, you know endorsement of everything we want to do. Now voters go away and watch TV, and we'll take it from here. So they don't really believe in democracy either side. And if they lose, well, somebody in, infiltrated the democratic process and stole it from us. But neither side really believes in democracy because if you really believed in democracy, uh, you would put a lot more authority into communities and let people decide for themselves. And the left and the right both hate that. And a lot of Americans, I think, would be afraid of it because they've been told that their fellow Americans are intolerant, evil, stupid. Yeah. Uh, You know, I was on some show and I was making the argument for community authority, community autonomy, like the founders intended. And this caller calls in and she says, well, if we did that, we'd have slavery again. And I'm like, ma'am, do you really think most of your fellow Americans would vote for slavery today? Is that what you think? And, and she really did. She thought, yeah. well, this is, these are my neighbors that I've never met. You know, so. this, this ultimately is, um, I think, the result of, and I'm going to pick on your um, most evil president, Woodrow Wilson. I learned something. I, I, didn't, I knew he had a PhD, but I didn't realize it was in political science. Yeah. Yeah, so he's, he's enduring shame, and that's and that's your PhD. So right. so we're going to judge accordingly. Yeah, I I I deserve it. <laughs> yeah, but but thinking about about the Wilsonian attitude, incredibly elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, he he had great disdain for people, yeah. um, and and I finally put those two words together, and I was thinking we we did it another project going back on the ancient history of socialism. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a French aristocrat named Saint Simon, mm-hmm. who is supposedly the founding father of socialism. Although his his acolytes picked up the term right after he died, but he also had this idea that you could take the and Anna Hayek's written a whole book criticizing Saint Simon, the counter revolution of science. Mm-hmm. That he had this idea that you could take the successes of the so called hard sciences, and apply them yeah. to human action apply them to politics yeah. and I, I think he even called it a science of, of politics mm-hmm. and and when you really dig deep into that it's it's not treating people as humans it's treating yeah. them as atoms yeah that's and right. rearranging and manipulating right. um, and making sure that the scientists the smart ones that's have right. the power that's to right. manipulate things to me that's that mindset is is the source of of Almost all of our problems. Well, yeah, I think this is why author- authoritarianism always ends in mass graves, because your um, subjects won't behave the way your models say they should, and so then you become a Puritan, right? That the, the only explanation is they're evil, right? So the, I mean, Pol Pot. You mentioned Pol Pot. They took it to the extreme. We need to kill everyone. You know, this is Jean Jacques Rousseau on steroids. We got to kill everyone who's had any contact with the West and start over because the West itself is corrupting. There's always this resort in the end to blaming the people for the failures of their masters, you know, the scientific overseers. Even even um, even Marx um, and and Lenin had this attitude that that violence was a good thing because you were really rebooting society. Yeah, yeah. And there's violence is sort of baked into the cake, yeah. which which is fascinating to me. I I, I don't think a single self-described democratic socialist would um, acknowledge that or even be aware that yeah. that rebooting society, forcing people to do things they don't want to do is inherently violent. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, but they, it comes out. You know, I had a friend who's a progressive friend and he used to joke that, in, you know, in the, in the heart of every progressive is an iron-fisted, um, you know, autocrat who's yeah. waiting to come forward, yeah. you know, and I don't know how you, um, I think sometimes it's, we don't see the uglier side because we're not in one of those countries that gets sideways with a George W. Bush or Obama, right? We're not the recipient of the drones and the manipulation and the CIA, this and that and the other. 
we become compliant here and so they don't have to turn the ugly side towards us you know they can use gentler means but um you saw in canada right and you had these truckers trying to in some way express their anger and yeah, they're breaking the law and you saw you know justin trudeau this should have been a magazine model not a world leader you know he goes to the banks right and he's yeah. going to freeze everyone's assets not just their assets but anyone who thinking they were giving to a legitimate cause because it was legitimate when they give the money their assets can be frozen too you see this snarl right it's yeah. like that moment in uh, lord of the rings when you know uh Bilbo wants to see the ring again and he's yeah. this little old man and then the yeah. little monster comes out for a second and that's that's every kind of that, progressive that's Justin Trudeau <laughs> <laughs> that, that I, I obsessed about the Canadian truckers and, and very much was sympathetic to their um, incredibly nonviolent mm -hmm. um, direct action as, as the left would say yeah. and the the response from the left um, was literally that democracy is attacking democracy and this is undemocratic and we must save democracy. Yeah. yeah. And I'm yeah. like, I, don't, I guess I don't even know what that means then. <laughs> I'd say, I mean, my, my progressive friends, I've seen my friends on the right. It's always that telling moment when your friends on the left or the right will call for violence against people who are breaking the norm in some way, whether it's these, you know, ranchers out west who are trying to fence stuff off or use federal lands that they say they can't, they're not given access to. My liberal friends are like, shoot them, throw them in jail. They're yeah. breaking the law. I'm like, really? You, you were kind of applauding when people are riding in the streets and burning stuff, you know? And then my right wing friends are like, shoot them. They're, <laughs> they're marching, shoot them. They're being disorderly. And I'm thinking, this is, you guys are really just right on the edge of supporting a dictator. We all imagine we would never support a dictator. We yeah. would never support a Hitler or a Ho Chi Minh or whatever. But for some people, they're just this close to it. They just haven't had the, the reason to yet. Well, I wonder if, 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 if tribal politics forces us to sort of fall back on that, that uh, resolution of violence on things. Because it, it feels like, and I'm, I'll, I'll give sympathy for... <laughs> For sort of populist reactionaries who are just frustrated, they're pissed, um, and, and you know, right now it's the right, and people are angry at Washington D.C. They're angry at the political class. Um, they see the collusion of big business and big government, and they see people like Pelosi enriching themselves at the expense of everybody yeah. else, at inflation and, and lockdowns and all this yeah. stuff on top of this. I I sort of feel their pain. I feel the right the the righteous anger that they have. Yeah. towards the system and they don't necessarily know what to do about it yeah. so they slide back into this well we got to elect our guys yeah. so we can punish the guys that did this to us yeah that's right and it's sort of it's a death spiral it is and this is my frustration with some of my friends on the right i'm i'm in neither party i'm one of those independents my, some of my republican friends their mindset is that we can just get our guy in the white house he can fix stuff. And the reality is, this is the, the beast we've created. You've got a Congress that no longer exercises any kind of oversight over the federal bureaucracy, a bureaucracy that's just metastasized. So now for every law passed by Congress, you have 28 rules created by federal agencies that have the full force of law. Nobody knows what they mean until you get sideways with them. And so Congress doesn't do anything. The president can't do anything. Look at George W. Bush trying to uh, rescind the roadless rule, which governed, you know, what kind of roads you could build into the national forest to maintain them, get the dead wood out, get the disease wood out so you don't have these massive forest fires. His whole presidency. He's the president, right? He, they report to him. He couldn't change it, right? So the, the notion that you're going to elect this great guy who's going to go in there and fix stuff, he's going to drain the swamp or whatever, it's a fantasy at this point. They, the president can't control the bureaucracy. Nobody can in Washington. There are not enough people in Washington to do it. But the but the slide, like if, if George W. Bush was trying to do that today, um, perhaps he could do it because what's happened, um, and you could go even back before George W. Bush, but you know, governance by executive order mm -hmm. or just blind bureaucracy. And sometimes the bureaucracy acts against the president's will, but yeah. um, certainly in the last two years with lockdowns, um, the arbitrariness yeah. And, and I would argue the unconstitutional behavior of, of the executive is a real thing, and no one seems to care. Yeah, that's right. I, the challenge even there is you have something called the Administrative Procedures Act, and the left is much more uh, adept at using 
that machinery to stop the right. When the yeah. right takes power in D.C., the left is very good at opposing um, the right's actions. This is why, at least in a couple of cases that went to the Supreme Court, it was, I believe, just really ineptitude on the part of Trump appointees that they got stopped by the judiciary because they had not done things properly, their deregulation properly, using the Administrative Procedures Act. And so even the executive order at this point is of limited use compared to what these, all the dark matter these agencies issue. It's not even governed by the regulatory process anymore. It's memoranda and, uh, you know, dear colleague letters that get the compliance they want without ever being subjected to any kind of review. Yeah. Um, so you got to figure out how you're going to fight that. And of course, what I argue is you've got to push back from the states. Right? Mm-hmm. You've got to have lawsuits in every state directed at every federal agency all the time yeah. that you won't get it from within D.C. Yeah. You're um, throw one more theory past you, and then I want to get to solutions because we could get deeply depressed about the state <laughs> of our country. Um, but um, Senator Mike Lee has this theory. You know, he's a he's a staunch constitutionalist, mm-hmm. a staunch federalist, and he argues that things like impeachment are the direct result of power and the expectation of power shifting from the local and state level to the federal level so that when um, we get to presidential politics, Mm -hmm. it's everything. Mm -hmm. The president is going to decide how we live our lives, which never was never supposed to be the case. I wouldn't say that it never was, but it's, it's certainly more heightened. So we, we will fight to the death Mm -hmm. to win the presidency, Mm -hmm. which by the way, makes you support the lesser, evil guy, mm-hmm. even if you don't like either choice. Um, does that make sense to you? Well, I think, yeah, especially with the rise of executive orders and the power of the bureaucracy, there is power in the presidency, to be sure. Um, so you're going to have that fight to the death. And it becomes more pressing, I think, because you've seen since uh, mid-'80s uh, kind of historic parity between Republicans and Democrats in Congress. And as you, they become more polarized, no conservative Democrats, no liberal Republicans, they can't really legislate anymore. They can't do oversight anymore. They can't even get along anymore. And so that gives even more power to the presidency because there's no active Congress right, competing with what the president wants. So it is the choice prize that each side wants. And then they can abandon all their talk of federalism and democracy and force as much of their rules down our throats as they can get away with for four years, and then we change seats and start all over again. Yeah, there does seem to be sort of a a cycle where um, our preference for the party that we vote for in the next election is probably just the party that's not in power and we've forgotten how bad they were. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's hard to tell. There's some political scientists who say, well, there's some, that's strategic thinking on the part of voters. I suspect it's probably not um, because you don't have that kind of at least unless they're lying to the pollsters, they don't have that level of kind of knowledge and sophistication. But they, they know who the president is. And generally what we've seen for the past 16 years or more is president takes power and his party, it's time to hand out the gift bag to their own small base, right? And it doesn't matter what the voters care about. They're going to try to cram through their stuff first. So with Biden, you get open borders and we're going to have a third gender on the passports and stuff like that. And it's just... you know, with gas prices and everything else, people lose their minds over that. And so Mm -hmm. they're like, we're getting this guy out of here. Um, So I don't think they're calculating, how do I have one party here and another party there? Or you'd see more split ticket voting. It's just a visceral reaction to the person they perceive to be in charge, you know. But I I almost, I will interpret that through a liberty lens and they they have a generally a visceral reaction to whatever the big government did that time. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly it. Neither neither party is serving them yeah. in any consistent way. So they just have this uh, dislike for the federal government. We see that in surveys, that the trust and regard for the federal, all federal institutions has gone into a nosedive, and you have much more trust with state and local. Yeah. The, uh, the title of your book, I, Citizen, seems to point, and, and I would— you, might, you could either say common sense or radical solution to all these problems we're talking about, mm-hmm. which is, again, perhaps look in the mirror mm-hmm. and say, what am I going to do about this? Yeah. And, you know, let's, let's be realistic about what I can do about this because I can't single-handedly solve 
partisan politics in Washington D.C. Right. So what what is the what is the answer? Oh. Um, so you've got your your finger on the what I hope would be a little unique part of the book was I thought okay I'm in the final chapter what's the answer I've, I've read all these books and they all have this sort of like this is here's his how new it thing fix by it. the way what's he's, up? he's decided to join oh uh, you're set. nice I have the meanest cat he's a mean sob he bites he claws he's an outdoor cat um, this is a nice cat yeah uh, so I just thought well how do I what can we do that's realistic, right? We don't have a magic wand. So it's not gonna be Congress should exercise oversight. You know, that, okay, yeah, sure. Pe- people should all be angels. Um, so I thought, well, let me just start. I was working it out in the chapter. And so it made sense to me to begin, well, well what do I know best? Well, I know myself best. So let me start there with the self and then go outward from there. And then it occurred to me as I was noodling on that, and some of that's sort of, I mean, there's a little hint of theology in there, right? Um, and a little echo of Solzhenitsyn, uh, mm-hmm. where I thought, well, if you just work on yourself, that's a lifetime's work, right? The, the, a single human heart is like a whole lifetime endeavor to get that in better shape. So start there. And then for some of us, uh, maybe we go outward from there to our neighborhood our community well one way in fact probably for a lot of us to make your heart better to make you a better citizen father husband you know co-worker whatever um, all of it entails other so start with the self but you've got to engage with others for the self to get any kind of practice at being better so what are you going to do with your neighbors i got to go get to know this lady who doesn't like my son's stupid loud car right i got to um you know, we got to figure. I've got to bring some potatoes when we harvest them to our neighbor up the hill who uh, has never shared any of his peaches. Not that I'm bitter about it. So we got to go there, and then maybe from there you go to local politics, and then to state. And so I just started with the inner part um, because I figured, if nothing else, we've got to inoculate ourselves against this political tribalism because right now we outnumber the really bad people in this country by a lot. They, they don't want you to believe that. Mm-hmm. So the media coverage, everything implies that your neighbors are crazy, red, blue, partisan, lunatics. They're really not. One way to inoculate ourselves against that poison is to get to know our neighbors more. Yeah. Because then if you know, my Democrat neighbor, my independent, my socialist neighbor, I can't hate as easily because yeah. I know some of them. And I thought, okay, the first step then is inoculation. And then from there you can go to political action, which is going to be, I would say, Big surprise, State Policy Network, uh, state-based action, pushing back in concert against the federal government is the the only solution. And then a, a last piece, and then maybe I'm not even answering the question you asked, uh, the more we can engage with local and state government, uh, which means some of us running for office, uh, getting to know these people and holding them accountable, sending better people to our state legislatures. Um, so engaging at all levels. Um, these are the people who become members of Congress. And there is no path back to liberty. I hate to say it. I don't even, I don't like believing this, but I'm convicted of it. There's no path back to liberty in this country that does not go through Congress. Because the way the Constitution was designed, you've got legislative supremacy. And they have become instead a minuscule shadow of what they're supposed to be. So we've got to start sending motivated federalists Mm-hmm. back into that institution and that's a long-term rebuilding yeah so l- let's let's dig a little bit deeper because um i want to talk about uh, the state policy network organizations but starting with this this sort of radical localism you know start with yourself first mm-hmm. there's there's hints of of jordan peterson there but there's also just this this idea that in, in our hearts, we understand that we do have to solve problems. And mm-hmm. the closer they are mm-hmm. and the more face-to-face they are, yeah. somehow we work it out. Yeah. And this yeah. is sort of, this would be the, the ultimate insight of, of those of us that believe in the market process is yeah. that we, you know, we, we don't know nearly as much as we think we do. Um, the future is radically uncertain. Yeah. Uh, nobody tells us to do this, but we start cooperating Mm-hmm. with our neighbors, usually out of necessity because, um, you know, their tree fell in your yard or something like yeah. that. Um, 
and out of that comes some of these these virtues that classical liberals like to talk about. Yeah. And you you start this chapter with love. Yeah. And I was thinking, um, you know, Adam Smith would call that um, empathy or yeah. um, fellow feeling. I think mm-hmm. was the phrase he used. But there's there's something about being a human being in a neighborhood and looking yeah. another person, and you you yeah. can say, I, I see some of myself in that person. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are different ways to think about love, and I'm certainly no expert. Um, but I think that my my sense and experience is that at some level it must begin with no expectation. So it's a good turn. Not just a feeling. I think I talk about that in the book. It's not a feeling. That's a false. That's like Beyonce, you know, lyrics love. So real love is always rooted in action. And for it to be genuine, it cannot come with an expectation of reciprocity. It doesn't mean that you do it foolishly forever when the person is like a jerk and they won't reciprocate, but it must begin from that genuine place. Uh, I think Thomas Frank wrote about that. Like the uh, the ability, was it Passions Within Reason was his book. And he said, you We've become remarkably adept at detecting deception and duplicity in other homo sapiens. So we've also therefore had to develop something like authenticity. The only way to get past all those self-defenses in the other is by truly, truly caring about them. Yeah. Uh, And I thought, oh, that's when I read that, I thought that's brilliant. So, yeah, you have to start there with that genuine offering and maybe nothing's returned. Right. Yeah. But it has to begin there. And then you get to um, sort of tolerance and even something stronger than that. But it, it's sort of like it's sort of baby steps to the point where, um, you know, trust is probably pretty high up on that list. Yeah. You don't start with trust, but, you know, yeah. lo- love is perhaps taking the risk. Yeah. Giving people right. the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Which is that, that extension, the bridge that then can lead to trust, yeah. right? Mutual trust. And it was Robert Franks, not Thomas Frank. He's a also a great writer, different field. So. Yeah. And and sort of taking that out, like, you know, we we probably agree that the best solutions are local. Mm-hmm. Um, starting with the individual and the family and the community. Yeah. And eventually I'm I'm a little skeptical of of, of the state. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sure. be honest. But, sure. Perhaps a necessary evil yeah. um, when we're trying to get back to Congress, mm-hmm. um, but our, our whole philosophy at Free the People is is we got to get upstream of politics mm-hmm. and connect um, on values, right? And I I think that's, that's right. the same theme in your book. That's right. And if we get the values right and and we start from the bottom up, it's quite possible that right. citizens would demand more of that's their right. of their candidates. That's right. Because right now, and, and you, you document this well, the, the, the typical candidate for Congress is appealing to the lowest common denominator. Right. That's right. Um, you, you've got, we, we've got research that shows this, that the parties, they no longer reach out to any kind of um, reasonable candidate that represents most people's views. So it's this kind of echo chamber. The money gravitates to these people as well. So they, they're not inclined to give up anything for the good of a community. And that's all a community is. It's like we're, or a family, right? Or a group of friends is we are always at some point giving something and receiving something and not born out of just transaction, but out of some kind of bond. And and I think, so if you think about a political, a polity, um, there has to be a similar sort of relationship. And so the, one way that you could reinvigorate sort of American politics would be to give people more authority in their communities because then they've got some stake in the game. Yeah, they have to work it out. Right now, what what's there to decide? You know, are we going to zone this commercial or not? You know, are we going to have a leash law or not? Now, those aren't unimportant things, but people sort of check out, which is exactly what the political class wants. They don't want you engaged, really. And local politics, right? They don't want you paying attention. You know, they want you to hate the other side and vote for them and then shut up and sit down. Yeah. And so that's what you got to figure out how to change, you know. So tell people a little bit about the state policy network because mm-hmm. that, that leads into federalism as one potential check on government power. Oh, sure. So the state policy network began um, with the, the idea that 
if you think back to the Heritage Foundation in those early years, the Reagan administration, and even before, they were a source of ideas and analysis for, uh, you know, right-minded or conservative people going into D.C. politics, right? So the thought was, well, what if you had something similar in every state where you've got we know that the state is biased towards more expansion and more towards the left. So you need this counterweight in, in the form of analysis and maybe even talent to go into these institutions. And that was the original idea. And so, we, you know, it's 63, 64 state-based groups now, litigation centers, think tanks, uh, independent journalism, and so on. And the, the thought is you can build this interconnected web of state-based institutions that are trying to influence policy in the states. What we've realized in recent years is even if we're successful and every state capital becomes, you know, pick your flavor, libertarian or conservative nirvana, we still lose because every state will become an administrative district of Washington, D.C. We've got to have some concerted pushback against federal agencies. And so that's not all of our energy, certainly. Um, we're still about state policies that work, but trying to find ways to together begin to push against these agencies through litigation or other kinds of legislation. So we've partnered with one of your groups, uh, Robert Alt from oh, yeah. Buckeye Institute, yeah. speaking of litigation and reigning in the administrative state, and and actually had him and one of his clients on the show yeah, talking about executive overreach here yeah. in Washington, D.C. Um, but the other trend I've seen, because I, I, I'm old enough to remember um, SPN in the early days, and it, it was kind of, let's create mini yeah. heritage foundations yeah. or mini Cato institutes. And there's there's a broad spectrum yeah. between conservative and libertarian. Um, um, but litigation is not the only thing. Uh, communicating and even organizing yeah. citizens. I've never been of the mind that you need a 501c4 to organize citizens because yeah. A gathering to have beers and talk about Adam Smith is not yeah. is not political yeah. advocacy of any yeah. kind. Well, not yet. They might try to define yeah. it that yeah, way. They'll, yeah, they'll work on it. Regulate it. Yeah. Know, make sure it's safe for everyone involved. <laughs> but but other th like like what are some other examples of what these state-based organizations do besides sure. litigation? Uh, well, so um, so there's a research component that matters. So the you know one big victory everybody was excited about was in New York when you had the Empire Center. Um, state-based group, uh, there was a legal component. So they were using FOIAs to get Department of Public Health data from the Cuomo administration, which was hiding it. They were manipulating the data, essentially to cover up the fact that this man deliberately put sick people back into vulnerable populations in nursing homes. And many, many more people died, we know this from the statistics, than would have died otherwise. Then he lied about it and covered it up, which is a crime. Um, and he's a big jerk, too, and a terrible governor. So a lot of reasons to dislike him. So they were on that and then finally forcing it out into the open. And then the press finally takes notice, right? Eventually, when the New York Times eventually decides it's news, you know, three years after it happens, yeah. you know, that's investigative journalism at its finest. Um, so that was a great victory. Or if you mentioned communications, if you go to Illinois and the Illinois Policy Institute and that terrible corrupt speaker of the state house there, Madigan, and they put together this really clever videos and a lot of data and stuff and interviews and just, it was a documentary that took him down when nobody thought he could be taken down. So you see that kind of stuff and um, there's a lot of room for that sort of creativity. Yeah. In part because there's such a dearth now of investigative journalism at the state level, no citizen action. And so you've got people who want to do something other than listen to talk radio and watch Fox News. They want to do something and so these these organizations are a channel for that yeah, action. You, you, you talk a lot about um, um, the corporate media. as mm -hmm. I've, I've started using that phrase and I'm comfortable with it, but it's sort of the blob of media that, that yeah. seems to be um, intimately intertwined with, with the state, meaning mm -hmm. the, the federal government. And, mm -hmm. and I have sort of a public choice theory as to why that is, because our government now spends an insane amount of money on advertising on social media, that's right. and so it's and so it, do other governments, yeah, right. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be some sort of deep state conspiracy, yeah. and just them chasing dollars, and yeah. and they're flowing from um, these big corporations and yeah. the government itself, and that is incentive enough for them to be yeah. lapdogs for those interests. Yeah, that's right. Um, but but I guess SPN, I guess I knew this, but. Um, 
this component of citizen journalism and, and mm-hmm. doing the digging and FOIA mm-hmm. requests, um, there's a lot of power there. There is, and we're also stressing something we call owned audience, which is um, you've got to maintain your own, and you know this better than anyone, you're doing it before most people, you've got to have your own access to your viewers, readers, listeners. You've got to have a direct channel because Facebook, Twitter, all these platforms, even like a MailChimp, the people who pose as just service providers, the people who run them hate us and yeah. they hate our ideas and they will choke you out. And so you've got to have, however you do it, direct access. In North Carolina, you got the Locke Foundation. Their direct access is they mail the newspaper. They're the third largest newspaper in the state of North Carolina. In others, it's more tech-oriented, but direct access so that you don't depend on these overseers of big established media to decide what is legitimate news and what is not. Yeah, because, because this, is, this is my, um, yes, and I, I personally, um, I've all but stopped doing so-called earned media mm-hmm. um, because you get a little bit dumber every time you go on MSNBC <laughs> or Fox. It's the same thing where you have yeah. 15 seconds to shout oh, yeah. at the camera. Yeah. And, and we explicitly built this program because uh, as, as Joe, Rog- Joe Rogan claims that sometimes you need three hours to tease right. out an idea. That's right. I'm not sure I can talk for three hours, but um, he, he's, I, the, the sentiment is exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but but the other piece, and I, I'm trying to convince my nonprofit friends that if you want to participate in in owned media, um, be comfortable being an influencer yourself, mm-hmm. and you don't have to be cynical. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do clickbait. Um, you don't have to do tribalism. It's a little bit harder if you don't do those things. Yeah. Right. And I could name names of people that do all those things in in a very destructive way. Yeah. Um, but I think there's an audience, and, and maybe somewhat synonymous with people that register as independents, but particularly young people mm-hmm. are interested in conversations that don't tell them what to think, yeah. but allow them the space to think mm-hmm. for themselves. Yeah. And to me, that's the revolution. Yeah, I think it's right. And they're, they're, they, they want generosity. So they, in a discussion, they want for people to be generous to one another in the discussion. They want yeah. to see that as well. You can do a three-hour podcast. People will listen. You know, they, they, they do have the attention span yeah. for it, right? We forget that. And you probably notice this on Twitter. I'm not anywhere your following size on Twitter, but I'll, you know, I'll tweet something that for whatever reason gets picked up by someone on the left is like, a, yeah, or on the right is, oh, yeah, that's right. And then you'll get a bunch of followers for a while, a bunch of new followers, because they're like, oh, he's one of us. Then sooner or later you're going to tweet something that disappoints them, and you lose them all again. Right. So they're ephemeral, right? Yeah. They're just they're out there looking for that, you know, dopamine hit. But but there's a base. Your base over time are the people who think, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be in a tribe other than my people that I live around and love. Like that's my tribe, yeah. right? My people. I was adamantly anti-lockdown, and I think I've collected some followers that are going to be disappointed by some of my other libertarian views. <laughs> and that's okay. We'll, we'll work it out together. <laughs> I had some tweet on, like, big medicine or big pharma or something, and got a lot of folks who were more on the left. Because you know, the pronouns are in the bio. That's how sure. you can tell you got the left-wingers. And um, and then I'm losing them all because I said something that the right likes. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting all the uh, MAGA people, so... It's all right. It balances out. So how do people um, find your book and find more about you and SPN if they want to? Uh, well, I like to say that my book is available wherever David French's books are available. It's a little jab at David French. Yeah, I, I met him. We should do a I whole show that, jabbing at David French. <laughs> I said some mean things in there, and then I saw him sitting alone in a restaurant. Uh, believe it or not, I'm like, I think that's David French. And I went and sat down with my wife, and I said, I think it's David French over there. And she's right away, because she'd read a draft of the book, she said, you should go apologize. <laughs> so I went and pre-apologized, which I'm sure he doesn't remember. Anyway, it's available Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Target and Walmart and everywhere. Uh, you can go to iCitizenBook.com, I think, and find something there. You go to my website, TonyWoodleaf.com. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to to get it. Um, so I encourage people to buy, you know, early and often. Yeah. As as many as they want. There's no penalty for buying more. Uh, there's no reason not to give the same book every Christmas. I think that's right because if people don't behave differently, they obviously did not imbibe the message and they need it again. Yeah. So go ahead and buy a box now. Beat them oh. over the head with it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what about SPN? Uh, so SPN, you go to spn.org and um, 
you see uh, you can see a map and see uh, state-based groups in every state whatever state you're in you see which groups are in our network that you might want to connect with there's a lot of policy stuff out there we're going to start putting more content up specifically on federalism not like nerdy theory there's other groups that do that a lot better but simply practical federalism what what does this mean right now uh for how we're governed cool thank you thank you matt thanks for watching if you enjoyed that show make sure that you like and subscribe click the little bell so that you get notifications and if you consume this via podcast go wherever you want to go we're everywhere kibbe on liberty the revolution starts now